1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the academic Richard Bradford, whose new book is Tough Guy, The Life of Norman Mailer. Richard, welcome. Now, this is a book which, let's say, doesn't start from a position of adoration of Norman Mailer as a literary figure. I've just picked out a couple of phrases. You describe one thing as highbrow idiocy at its worst another chaotic mixture of coprophilia and Manichaean gibberish, elsewhere hilariously terrible, and saps our will to
0: remain awake. Was he just no good at all? He wasn't no good at all. His debut novel, The Naked and the Dead, was regarded, I think, quite rightly, as one of the best novels of the Second World War because it was excellent documentary realism. When he served in the Pacific... He took notes endlessly when he was talking to fellow servicemen so he could get all the accents and idioms right. And when he wrote to his first wife, they were genuine letters of love and so on and so on. But what he was also doing was making notes about where he'd been and about the landscape and where he was passing through, knowing that when he got back, he'd have a fairly straightforward and immediate record. And that's how he put the the novel together. And it did... Result in an excellent book, and it made him. He went from nowhere to fame and pretty considerable wealth. But there, thereafter, in terms of pure fiction, he went downwards. But already,
1: as you describe it, you know, he was treading that kind of borderline between fiction and reportage in what at least ostensibly was a straight novel, wasn't he?
0: Yeah. He more or less gave up. Well, he went back to it later, but following his two next novels, he didn't write any fiction until probably the 1970s and 80s. But in the interim, he decided to try out this blend of realism, reporting on events that could be authenticated by looking at other media and so on and so on. and Sometimes he'd include himself in this, but he used the devices of fiction to make them different. I mean, the classic example is Armies of the Night, which was about the anti-Vietnam protests in which he took part in Washington, and so on and so on. And Norman Mailer becomes a character in this, whereas there's a third-person narrator, who, of course, is Norman Mailer, but we don't know that, or we're not really supposed to know that. And it works really well. It won him the Pulitzer Prize.
1: I I mean, not, not quite a rehearsal for that, but before that came this essay he wrote on Kennedy, so I think the Superman comes to the supermarket, Yeah, which at the time, I think at least one person you quote said, you know, this completely transforms the possibilities for journalism. Do you think that, I mean, I know that he was in that kind of crowd of the so-called new journalists that, that were starting to push boundaries of what journalism could do, but do you think that accolade was deserved? Do you think what Mailer was doing with this sort of fictional journalistic Mix up really was one of the crucial things that opened those possibilities.
0: I suppose it was deserved because, as you say, and as many people at the time said, no-one had done anything quite like this before. But he achieved this almost by accident. He was desperate to become part of the Kennedy set, the network, and he was eventually invited to go to the Kennedy house, mainly because there was this terrible story circulating there was a a cartoon, almost, of Nixon looking like a swarthy used car salesman. And the Republicans hit back by adding to that a version of Kennedy next to it with Peach Bubble saying, Kennedy will sell you a car, he'll make sure it runs well, he'll pop round to the house to check it over and then he'll sleep with your wife. And the Kennedy set were worried that the Republicans knew the truth about what Kennedy actually got up to. That is, his extramarital activities. And they might start feeding this into the media before the election was finished. So what they did was invite a mailer and eventually his wife over to try and find out what he knew about what was going on in the background, which essentially was nothing. He didn't know anything. And they dumped him. And He could never actually accept this, although he thought that the supermarket essay had earned him their respect. That had nothing to do with it at all. And he continued to write to the Kennedys, even after John F. K. was assassinated, advising them on what to do about Cuba and the Cold War and so on and so on, and none of them ever replied. But he thought they were...
1: There's a bit where you say that he'd thought that by forming a personal connection between Castro and the Kennedy administration, he was going to bring the Cold War single-handedly to an end. Yeah, yes.
0: But, I mean, uh, Castro didn't reply either. (laughs) (laughs) But But he thought, nevertheless, that Castro had taken it in and was waiting for him to become the mediator or the officially appointed mediator between the White House and Havana. And he kept this sort of, you could call a sort of dialogue going between them, although neither of them took any notice of what he was doing in his letters. They thought he was off his head, um, both Castro and the Kennedys. But, I mean,
1: was Mailer off his head, do you think?
0: Uh, well, he was he was a bit delusional. And this was really the, the reason for him running twice for the governorship of New York. He thought he could also become a politician. And having failed with his bid to become an advisor officially appointed, with the Kennedys, he thought he'd, you know, go his own route. He was completely nuts. Well, can we start by then looking at, at Mailer the Man and the, the,
1: the, the making of this particular species of sort of grandiose nutsness? Know, what was the child Norman Mailer like? What, how did he grow into this extraordinary
0: figure? Well, by comparison, he was, I suppose, fairly ordinary. He was extraordinarily intelligent. I mean, at his, what we call it, junior school, I suppose, his IQ rating was the highest recorded in Brooklyn, which mm-hmm. is why he was admitted to Harvard age 16, although he, had, he didn't actually attend until he was 17 because they thought it was slightly preposterous to actually allow a 16-year-old in, although intellectually they thought he was suitable. But although he, he was, as I say extremely intelligent, but in the way that you would expect someone who was destined for a career in mathematics or pure blue sky science was intelligent. And he hardly ever read anything at all, apart from comics and thrillers from time to time. And it was only when he got to Harvard that he picked up an interest in literary writing. He, He was reading aeronautical engineering. So that was the direction of his intelligence. He had a scientific, brilliant scientific mind as a teenager and a kid. And then he switched to literature.
1: Uh, why do you think he did? Why, I mean, he clearly hungered for a particular sort of literary fame as well. Was it the, the lionisation of, of literary figures that
0: attracted him to it? It's really impossible to say. I think during his time at Harvard, he enjoyed... Role playing, he became something of a chameleon. He liked trying accents out. He he'd he'd exaggerate his Jewish Brooklyn accent, and he'd try a few other accents as well from all over the states, from people he'd met in various other contexts, even as a, a teenager. And no one quite knew who he was, in the sense that they couldn't quite pin him down. Obviously, there were the East Coast American aristocrats who'd gone to private schools, and they knew each other probably sometimes from the schools they'd actually been to before. But there was always the question that faced people like that, the middle-class Americans, who is this person, Mailer? And it seems to me, although there's no documented proof of this, that he rather liked the idea of reinventing himself in the way that you do when you start writing short stories and fiction. And thereafter, or quite soon after that, he started having a go at it. So there seems to be a sort of causal relationship between himself performing as the mischievous outsider and taking up what eventually became his career as a writer. How important was his Jewishness? He, he didn't make a lot of it unless he thought it was useful to him. As I say, he sometimes exaggerate the Yiddish-Jewish accent that he'd picked up from his parents and his parents' friends. But again, that was mostly performance. He didn't bother too much about it. Throughout his career, he hardly ever mentioned anything like Israel, for instance. So Judaism and being Jewish meant very, very little to him. You know, he's, he, he occasionally encountered anti-Semitism, but he sort of just threw it off. I'm intrigued by the sort of
1: career-long relationship between, if you like, fiction and non-fiction, and, as you say, the sort of self-reinvention. The, you know, something that comes through very strongly in your book, and I think you say somewhere near the beginning, is that, you know, his sort of greatest work of fiction, in a sense, was himself. I mean, a lot of writers are looking for that sort of negative capability thing. They're, they're trying to imagine what it would be like to other people. But so much of what Mailer seems to do in both his fiction and his ostensible non-fiction is finding new angles on Norman Mailer. Do do you think, sort of, in a way, that's the way to read him, that his literary project is this idea of himself rather than, as with most writers, the work as fiction?
0: As you say, nearly all fiction writers adapt versions of themselves for various reasons and in various ways to their novels. And Mailer certainly fits into that category. And everywhere in his fiction, you'll find versions of Norman Mailer. Uh, In the Deer Park, for instance, which was supposed to be an attack on sexual exploitation and general corruption in Hollywood, which he encountered when he went there, supposedly to make a film version of The Naked and the Dead. He ended up making a few other things as well. And he was attacking that, but in a way he was trying to make up for what he'd experienced and enjoyed when he went to Hollywood, because he loved it. I mean, when he went to Metro Goldwyn Mayer, Louis B. Mayer said, OK, he was there with his friend, and he said, OK, you've got two offices. The third room is a bedroom. He said, but we've got a place down the road. I said, no, you don't realise that this is different. What sort of secretaries do you want? Well, just secretaries that can, you know, do a good job. No. Do you want Hispanic? Do you want white? Do you want black? Do you want red hair, blonde? He said, what does this matter? He said, which ones do you want to fuck? And he meant it because everybody in the business was selling sex. And Mailer loved it, but he had to turn against it in the Deer pog. So it was a version of Mailer in that novel hating himself for enjoying what he'd experienced in Hollywood. Yeah. And that that trip to
1: Hollywood, I mean, he was accompanied, wasn't he, by this figure who's really important in Mailer's kind of intellectual makeup, up Yeah. I mean, there is a sort of wonderful comedy that they've only realised once they've signed the contract. In fact, they're not writing a script for the naked and the dead after all. They're making, writing a script for Nathaniel West, Miss Lonely Hearts. But this guy, Malachai, is sort of... What is their relationship? Because Malake seems to be someone who's a profound communist with real experience of Eastern Europe and the Second World War and fascism. And Mailer's communism, at least you know in the first part of his life, seems, seems always kind of frivolous.
0: Well, that's correct, in the sense that Malachy, I suppose, was a version of... He was a Marxist purist in the sense that he understood Marxism far better than most people at the time, who either supported it or who would just dallied with it. But he also understood its failings, and particularly in the way that Marxism had been employed in the Eastern Bloc, and by Stalin in particular. And he's fascinated by Mailer, because Mailer had read bits of Marx and read bits of associated ideological works. But his notion of Marxism was actually fed to him by his first wife, B, whose family was, uh, I suppose, bathed in Marxist ideology. And she told him all about it, but it, most of it went over his head. He wrote an article, his 1st nonfiction piece, After the Naked and the Dead, went into print, in which he said that, or predicted, that quite soon the Eastern Bloc would move into the West, not because there was going to be a Third World War, but that the West would realise what a good time they were having and convert, and that eventually the states would go that way too. He was completely off his head. He didn't understand about, shall we say, I mean, that, you know, a common feature of people who were, who are, shall we say, fairly well off and commit themselves to Marxism, and he was becoming well off at the time, is that they ignore the anomaly that if the, the country are in does become Marxist, their life that they're enjoying will disappear, just like that. And he, like most other people, they ignored that. Is your sense that Mailer's Marxism...
1: I mean, it, it changes later in his career and he becomes pretty reactionary, but is your sense that his Marxism was any more than skin deep or that it was a sort of a petit le bourgeoisie kind of pose that was about making himself seem rebellious?
0: Yeah, again, he didn't in his later years, espouse it so naively as he did when he was in his 20s. But it was a pose, yes, for most of the time. And I think you, you ought to look at his supposed socialist sympathies in relation to the famous, infamous, very long article. It was almost book length that he wrote in the 1950s between his various, well, after his, most of his early fiction. Called the White Negro. I mean, I've never come across a non-fiction work like this before. Basically, he's saying that America will only be revolutionized, will only the, the American society will only be altered through the influence of the undercurrents of African Americans and criminals, and mostly the two of the same thing, because African Americans often have to survive in these areas where criminality is the order of the day. And you think, well, this is interesting, I suppose, but what it boils down to in the end is him saying that African-Americans are superior to complacent whites because, essentially, they have a lot more sex. I kept reading it and I thought, is that what he's saying? And, yes, it is what he's saying. It's about masculinity being the nature uh, at the centre of revolutionary change. That's a very sort of...
1: I mean, I think you, you James Baldwin came across it and was a little bit like... Uh, I mean, what, there were a huge number of people who really went for it, but Baldwin went, no, nah, actually, this is racist nonsense, didn't it? Oh, yeah,
0: he was appalled by it. It is very racist. It didn't seem so at the time because... Well, let's put it this way. If it had been written by a southern states racist and stripped of its ideological jargon, it would have, even in the 1950s, been condemned. But because it was fed into, shall we say, the popular middle-class East Coast ideology of revolution and uh, left-wing ideals, nobody seemed to notice the fact that he was treating uh, African-Americans, Latinos, as subhuman.
1: This idea that seems to go through Mailer's, I mean, it seems to be a sort of thread that goes through his whole career that sex and violence and sexual violence are in some way the most important transformative force socially. I mean, it seems to come before politics, doesn't it? Or before any sort of material politics.
0: Yes, I mean, that's, that's a key factor in uh, The White Negro. And you find it also in quite a number of his novels, very disturbingly, um, O'Shaughnessy, we'll the figure in The Deer Park, re-emerges in a long novella short story about two or three years later. And he has sex with a New York student who is, manages to pick up and impresses with his left-wing ideals and his, his then-profession as a bullfighter. <laughs> and when... Mailer describes them having sex. It is the equivalent of rape, and you can't help but see that he approves of it. This is the sort of sex that ought to take place, and you'll find that in several other novels as well. Most notoriously, I suppose, in *An American Dream*, it opens with Roschak murdering his wife and throwing her off the balcony, then raping the German maid, and without showing any remorse at all, he gets away with it. And the rest of the novel is about the musings of Rojack on the American experience. And he seems by implication to say that this is just part of life for the active, sexually energetic rebel, if you like.
1: Yeah, is there a kind of sense in his work, I mean, it comes through maybe in Even the White Negro, where he he speaks sort of approvingly of the transgressive relationship that some people who murder a convenience store owner have struck up with the fascist system. And at other times, I think, you know, later notoriously when the criminal the murderer, he he gets paroled, Abbott, Jack, Jack Henry Abbott, is that the...?
0: Uh, Abbott, Abbott's the one
1: who... Who goes on to kill again.
0: Who, who, who suddenly emerges from nowhere after he's written about Gary Gilmore... And Mailer finds that there is a real Gary Gilmore because, you know, the the Executioner's Song was a classic case of him writing about actual events but mythologizing them, slightly fictionalising them, turning Gilmore into a sort of anti-hero. And Abbott wrote to him. And when he read Abbott's letters, he found that this was the figure he'd invented for his version of Gilmore. And Abbott was real. Trouble was when Abbott came out of jail, two weeks later he murdered a waiter. After that, when
1: Mailer's asked about this, he sort of says, Well, don't stick him back in jail. Society needs to be able to take risks. I mean, is there a sense in Mailer that the vital, virile, violent, transgressive figures that he lionizes, you know, if they effectively have more rights than, you know, dull, conventional schmoes who aren't Part of this
0: that's exactly what he said when he represented abbott at his trial that essentially artists should be given special treatment even if they kill people which must i'm sure have contributed to abbott being found guilty and sent down for life and
1: as far as artist special treatment goes i mean made it the man to put it and was that was was a serial wife beater. Quite aside from his sexual delinquency,
0: as, as far as the evidence suggests, only two of his wives escaped, but we can't be sure about that. So four of the six were certainly beaten by him. Now, what do you think?
1: Because violence—I mean, not just against his wives, but against people—you know—he'd go to parties and try and start fights. Why? Why was violence so central to his conception of himself? Leaving aside the moral questions,
0: again, it goes back to this dynamic that he'd, he'd invented, where he saw a in where a causal relationship between creativity, revolution, sexuality, masculinity, violence, and so on and so on. They were all bound together, and that was his perception of himself. So the way he lived, in the sense that he he was a serial monogamist in the sense that he never stayed unmarried for more than about three weeks, because he'd always been having an affair with the woman he'd eventually marry before the wife previously found out about her. Yet at the same time, he continually be having affairs. So it, when I say he's a serial monogamist, he stayed married to women throughout his life, but he never stayed faithful to any of them. So in a sense, he, he, he regarded marriage as something that was part of this transgressive ideal that he had. You couldn't stay faithful to your wife. He often tried to maintain the relationship while getting away with having as many affairs as possible with as many women as possible. But he was pretty careless, usually. And the succession of his many wives,
1: what was his relationship with them, like, apart from obviously unfaithful, I mean, notoriously, he stabbed his second wife. And there's a kind of curious code to that. You, you describe how, even after they'd split up, she would, t- for years later, she'd turn up at his readings. And, you know, he tried to kill her. How do you read that kind of weird friendliness or continued relationship with him?
0: Adele, much later, I mean, I think about three and a half decades after he stabbed her, she wrote a memoir. It's impossible to say whether it's an accurate account of how she felt and even actually what happened. But you still get a sense of feeling an enormous amount of affection for him. And uh, the explanation for that, I've no idea. Perhaps she liked being treated like that. It's a terrible thought, I know, but there we
1: are. Did he have any any sort of conscience? I mean, reading this book, you know, I don't, you know one comes to this idea this man was one of the most horrible human beings in the history of literature, which is quite a high bar. Do you think he was mentally ill? Was he an alcoholic? Was he a psychopath? I mean... At, How do you read his character in the round? Obviously, he was an egomaniac.
0: Well, he overdid it quite a lot with alcohol and drugs, but so do many other people, and they don't necessarily behave as he did. I suppose because he became famous and because he became so acclaimed as an artist, and this fits in with his defence of Abbott, you know, if you're an artist, you should be allowed to behave as you wish. He perceived himself in a, a sort of narcissistic anarchist in that I'll do what I like... Because I'm allowed to do what I like, because I'm a great writer. So he just went around hitting people, including women, having affairs, and so on and so on and so on, and writing things that were variously misogynistic, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, and so on and so on. I mean, don't want to stop doing side swipes here. But the, the the Guardian review of this was interesting because. The reviewer acknowledged that he was like this. He didn't dispute that my presentation of him was in any way inaccurate, nor did he criticise the way in which the book had been written. But he said, hmm, he was a writer of some sort of significance who deserves a much better memorial than this. I thought, what? So I wrote them a little letter saying, now, would you have published... A review of this biography. Had the biography been written by a woman of color, they didn't answer all. Certainly, didn't publish it. Of course, I thought it was an interesting point, though, because I'm white and male. I have to, like Mailer did, respect the lunatic artist.
1: Well, I certainly, you'd think, you know, if we were in the cancellation zone, Mailer would be. I mean, even in the seventies, it's extraordinary that he wasn't wasn't more cancelled. Than he actually was.
0: I wouldn't want him cancelled at all, <laughs> in the sense that, it, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to read about him. Uh, well, it, it shows you the worst in people. And if you're, uh, there's any decency in you, it will teach you to behave in a different way.
1: What was it that he did right, though, in the sense that quite often your argument is, you know, various of his essays. If you get to the bottom of them, they're vile, but for the most part, they're incoherent enough or badly written enough or impenetrable enough that they got a free pass from the literary
0: establishment. That's true, yeah. I mean, he, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of articles, say, for, the, for Esquire, a very popular magazine, and I'm astonished that they all got in because uh, when I just dipped into them to see if I could use any of them, no, I couldn't because I didn't understand what the on earth he was going on about. They were short pieces, you know, about a thousand words or whatever. But when he was, the, the works that,
1: you know, you'll you'll say, actually, there was something there. I think you'd probably say that of The Armies of the Night, and I think you have some warm words, The Executioner's Song. Um,
0: oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly literary talent at the heart of those. I movies. mean,
1: he had a kind of gift for phrase-making, would you say? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, And where was it strongest?
0: I I, I suppose you you mean uh, brief phrase-making or creating... No, I mean, sort of in the sense that, obviously,
1: he produced a huge amount. A lot of it was wildly incoherent or puffed up in order to, to create a pose or to shock, which he seemed to want to do throughout his life. But do you find there are some sort of aspects of his work or careers where you go, like, this is where he was actually doing you know, servicing his gift best and producing something that was useful and that people could work on or work with. You know, what's what needs to survive?
0: Well, as I say, the armies of the night and the executioner's song are, in their own right, interesting pieces of work. And in a way, some of the non-fiction articles from the 1950s, including, I suppose, The White Negro, are interesting diagnostic documents because he was allowed to say this and the left-wing-ish East Coast establishment were enthusiastic about him saying this. He was right at the head of what was thought couldn't be said, which is they why they allowed him to say it. And again, this, I think, increased in him the sense that there's no stopping me. There are, there are no such thing as transgressions for me, either in what I write or in what I do. So he just went on again and again and again, doing exactly what he wanted as an individual and a writer. I mean, for extraordinary details such as that he...
1: You know, Gloria Steinem, who you'd think might be a little cherry of such a kind of thoroughgoing misogynist. I mean, she may or may not have slept with him, but she she was... Sort of, if you like friendly with him.
0: Well, I heard said that she did eventually, but anyway.
1: yeah, but that she sort of was in his circle briefly when he was during one of his political campaigns.
0: Yeah, in the second one, yes, she was. The... And <laughs> she never really explained why. I suppose she was deceived in many ways by the spectacular delusional idiocy of his manifesto in the 1969 campaign, where he wanted to turn New York into a sort of version of at least what the most naive socialists saw as Cuba. You know, he had these, he was was going to have these wonderful Sundays where markets would be open on streets and farms from surrounding areas outside the urban centre of New York would bring fresh Facebook's in, all automobiles will be banned, there'll be no trains, there'll be no aeroplanes, electricity will be cut off. And it sounds like something from the green movement of the present day. And so his, his audiences will sit there saying, "But what about, you know, machines that are keeping people alive in hospitals? He said, well, impeach me. But another woman at the event said, what about last year when snow was three feet deep? and we had to have ploughs out. If we don't have motor vehicles to clear the snow, we'll all die. He said, I'll piss on it.
1: Is there a sort of way of reading all that? As, uh, and as also there was another that made me write frivolous in huge letters on my proof of your book, where he said, you know, well, if Eichmann had killed all those victims with his bare hands, he'd have earned our grudging respect. I mean, were there any of his positions political position is anything more than a put-on or a clown?
0: Oh, no, I I don't think it was intentionally frivolous at all. He meant what he said in things like that.
1: But that's profoundly frivolous, isn't it? I mean, it's so... Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: But is there a sort of diffusion line existentialism that he's just being like, I'm a situationist, I'm just going to throw a rock into the pond? I mean, was there some sort of rationale behind the ludicrous lack of thinking through of any of his grand statements or profound positions?
0: No, uh, I don't think there was a rationale behind it at all, because most of them were based upon delusions and prejudices that, because they were his, he thought he had maintain. I mean, the most famous, I suppose, was where he knotted Gore Vidal on the Dick Cavett show. And there was a sort of subtext there that the audience probably, well, didn't really understand, because he, he accused him on the studio floor of... He said, you murdered Jack Kerouac. And everyone in the audience, well, most of the in the audience, knew that Jack Kerouac had died fairly recently of, what well, he basically drunk himself to death. And, you know, he said, why did he murder Jack Kerouac? The, the back story here was that uh, something like 10 years earlier, Vidal had admitted to him when they were driving back to somewhere in Provincetown that the previous night he'd slept with Kerouac. In his fairly, you know, aristocratic nonchalant nonchalant manner, and Mailer had threatened to crash the car and kill both of them because he would potentially ruining the talent of this great writer by turning him into a homosexual. He He believed that homosexuality was, by parts, a disease and a choice. He was
1: very troubled by homosexuality, wasn't he?
0: Yeah. But again, in a sense, you can see a sort of consistency there because he was obsessed by macho sexuality. And if you were a homosexual, in his view, there was something odd about you. It was because of an odd choice that you made. He became liberal in the sense that he saw homosexuality as something that should be allowed, but he still saw it as a choice, a slightly perverse choice, but a choice. His relationship with
1: Hemingway, the other great tough guy of literature, there's a. How much do you think that his idea of Hemingway, maybe rather than Hemingway himself, kind of shaped the way he was as a writer and as a man?
0: Uh, I'm, i I suppose there's something in that. In that um, they never actually communicated at all. He wrote to Hemingway a few times, in the same way that he wrote to Castro and the Kennedys after the latter and dumped him, and Hemingway never replied to him either. You know, he was living in a world of illusions where he thought the people who would respect him would reply to him, or at least be affected by what he said to them. But they threw all this stuff away, I think. But, again, the notion, the the myth that Hemingway created for himself as, again, one of the reasons we use this title, the tough guy of literature, I think that had some influence on Mailer's perception of himself with regard to, I mean, he briefly tried out bullfighting himself in Mexico, and there was the thing about boxing as well throughout his life, although he was utterly useless. But he did go into the round with a few uh, pretty good middleweight fighters, one of whom was a world champion. But because they were friends of his, they, they let him off lightly. I mean, they could have flattened him easily. He was useless. Which I want to
1: kind of ask you about him a bit in in the context of kind of the literary canon. He's sort of at least certainly when I was when I was growing up, there was this generation of you know big American novelists who I guess you'd associate sort of Updike, Bellow, Roth, Mailer, and kind of Tom Wolfe. You know, it seems like well, I think Wolfe's star has fallen and Mailer's has as well. Do you think he's sort of? Going to survive in any? I mean, I think we could probably say we'd be sure, pretty sure. Say Philip Roth and Saul Bellow are going to survive. Do you think Mailer will survive as a writer or as a sort of ideological and political and moral curiosity?
0: Um, I think I think the latter, but because of that, he will drag his writing into his legacy, if you like. He won't just be regarded. He can't just be regarded as a person famous, infamous for foul behaviour and views and all the rest of it. Because if it were that, he might be just some barroom bore. Because he's a writer as well, we have to look at how being a writer made him think he could do these things. And it did, I think. In, in his view, it licensed a, a form of limitless transgression in terms of what he said in words and what he did in life extraordinary so in some sense a bit of mission
1: accomplished for him i think so yeah (laughs) which bradford thank you very much